This is the sixth lecture of Innovate 103 on privacy, data, the law, and medicine. I'm first going to talk about what privacy means in the context of big data, go over some key ideas in Canadian privacy law, then talk about how these issues play out in particular in the medical field. As we've seen the past few weeks, data is the fuel that drives every AI system. So it's more important than ever to know where your data is and who has control over it. Let's get started. Part one, into the dataverse. Your alarm rings. You check your sleep score. A notification. Leave now to make it to your flight on time. You get into the car. You ask your phone for directions. It already knows where to. Your boarding pass appears on your phone automatically. You step into the airport. A notification. The shirt you wanted is now 25% off. You order it off your phone while you wait. You're hungry. You buy a cookie with a contactless app. You fly, connecting to the in-flight Wi-Fi. This is not a secure connection, it warns, but you ignore that and work on your healthcare AI startup. You land, open up Instagram, a recommendation for a restaurant in this new city. Ding! An email from your doctor. Your scan comes back negative. Click here to access. You order an Uber. It auto-completes the address. You see your driver's score. You get to your Airbnb. The owner looks different from their photo. They text you the passcode to the door. You walk around the city. Ding! 10,000 steps achieved. You return home. Ding! Swipe now on Tinder to find a date in this new city. You log into Tinder. Grant Facebook access to the app. Swipe aimlessly. Check Google News. Exactly the sports updates you were looking for. Your alarm is already set for you, ready to monitor your sleep sounds. You drift off. Welcome to the information age. In this first part of the lecture, I want to explore how your information is being collected, bought, sold, and stored essentially everywhere you go. I am grateful to Sarah Villeneuve and Stephanie Fielding, whose series of articles called Into the Dataverse served as the backbone for much of this. And while a lot of what I'm discussing might feel far afield from the AI discussions we've been having before, remember, right now, machine learning is in most cases completely meaningless without reams of data to train models. If we're going to care about AI, we have to care about the information that feeds it. I'll start with some of the most common technologies that people have in their homes, in their workplaces, and on their bodies that generate huge quantities of data. A common AI device that is increasingly becoming a household staple is smart speakers like the Amazon Echo or Google Home. While these devices are not necessarily storing everything you say, they are certainly always listening, and they remember every command that you and everyone else has ever given them which means that they typically know your music preferences, your most frequently visited locations, your shopping list, your bedtime, the friends you message, and much more. What's more, every night, the information that you convey to your smart assistant gets sent up to the cloud, where it mixes with everyone else's data 
to train Amazon's natural language processing voice command neural network. But no surprise, this also requires human beings to annotate the data that comes in, which means that there are thousands of people who can hear the commands you give your smart assistant to. How about smart doorbells like Nest or Ring? The Ring doorbell is filming video 24-7 and employs sophisticated facial recognition to tag people as they approach the door. Ring also has a video-sharing agreement with police departments in the U.S., giving law enforcement access to millions of people's household video footage to pursue crimes. As I hope the events of the past couple weeks have brought into clear relief, we should be extremely concerned about any technology that increases the power of the police. We should also keep in mind that these technologies almost always end up disproportionately affecting poor people and communities of color. Another example that's quite relevant to the present protests taking place in the United States and around the world is the fact that police departments, including the one in Toronto, have used facial recognition technology to match suspects to perpetrators on CCTV cameras. Similar technology can be used to identify individuals at protests and large gatherings so that the police or the RCMP can keep tabs on people it might identify as potential disruptors. If you've ever heard people caution against posting pictures of people's faces at protests and public demonstrations, this is why. One other key locus for data is simply internet browsing data. Even when you're using the internet in Canada, your information might be rerouting through American data centers, which means that it's possible for surveillance organizations like the National Security Agency, or the NSA, to get a hold of your internet usage information. If you were following the Ed Snowden NSA scandal from a number of years ago, you'll know that especially in the years since 9-11, the United States government and military has massively expanded its surveillance capabilities, with the capacity to track individuals' phone conversations, texts, and internet usage. The same is true of your mobile phone data the pace at which data is going from your phone to the cloud to dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of marketers, data aggregators, search analytics companies, and other organizations whose names you and I have never heard of is truly staggering. By the way, let me stop for a second to speak a bit about the cloud. What is the cloud? I'm sorry to say, but we have been absolutely duped by this choice of nomenclature because the cloud makes it seem like it's some central hub in space where data shows up, gets used, and poof, disappears from existence. Sadly, this is not how it works. In order to appreciate what the cloud is, you need to understand that the internet is a physical thing. The internet is a physical network of wires, data centers, routers, and devices like mobile phones or computers. Some aspects of internet connectivity are wireless, like the Wi-Fi in a home, 
But once that signal hits a router, it's all wires from there on out. So when you're doing something in the cloud, for instance, writing in Google Docs, what's happening is that your information is being retrieved from a Google server somewhere. I'd encourage you to look these servers up. They're often in extreme remote locations to keep them safe, and they make for some excellent landscape photography. In fact, one of the world's largest data centers is housed in a church in Spain just to keep it cool. Um, it's quite the image. Either way, the cloud is not a cloud. The cloud is just someone else's computer. All right, moving on to some other common sources of data in the world. Let's talk specifically about health data. People are increasingly using apps and devices to monitor their sleep, eating habits, and fitness. The information gathered from these devices is health data, just as your blood glucose levels or an MRI of your foot is health data. The difference is that the latter being generated by a clinic or a hospital, are subject to certain legal protections. For instance, in Canada, we have the Personal Health Information Protection Act, or FIPA, and in the U.S., there's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, or HIPAA, which lay down the ground rules for how healthcare providers must treat patient data. By contrast, health apps such as a Fitbit, being privately owned, can play by their own rules. In many cases, this means that the information they collect can be shared with pharmaceutical and insurance companies. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. As we've seen with COVID-19, many pharmaceutical companies provide an absolutely essential service in their capacity to develop and scale vaccines, antiretroviral drugs, and other important medical advancements. But unfortunately, there is also the potential for quite bad outcomes, like insurance companies using data from a fitness app to raise the price of medications or health insurance. Also, given that many of these companies are American, the data generated from them is also stored in the U.S. and subject to U.S. laws, which can be a bit more lax. Just to give one concrete example, people are increasingly using sleep apps to track and optimize their sleep. This is, in many ways, a very good thing. A good night's sleep is one of the best things you can do for your health, and it's not an exaggeration to suggest that we currently have a global undersleeping epidemic. But these apps are not simply monitoring your sleep information and sharing it with just you. A popular sleep app called Sleep Cycle says in its terms of service that it, quote, shares anonymized and aggregated data with its affiliates and business partners for commercial, statistical, and market research. Similar things are happening with meditation apps, period tracking apps, wearable health devices, and much more. As we will soon see, anonymization is not at all equal to security. Removing your name from your information does not dissociate you from it entirely. So this is a huge quantity of health information that these apps own that is now floating free in cyberspace. 
Here's another example of data from gaming. Many people play games on their phone, such as Angry Birds. It turns out that in 2014, Angry Birds was actually implicated in the NSA Ed Snowden leaks for providing the U.S. government with behavioral and personal information about its users. The reason escapes me why the government would want Angry Birds data. Maybe the people who are really good at Angry Birds have a particular set of skills that the U.S. military finds threatening. Who's to say? I'm going to stop here to avoid just listing hundreds of examples because they range from credit score apps to location tracking through Presto cards to online shopping to robo-advisors to CCTV cameras outside of malls. But before moving on, let me concretely address an important question. Why should you care? What if your activity on all of these apps and websites is completely kosher? You have absolutely nothing to hide. What's the deal? Well, first, recognize that even data that seems fully kosher to you might not appear that way to others. Online data collected about you can be used in predictive models that determine whether you get a job, your health insurance prices, your sentencing or bail if you commit a crime, the capacity to track you before you've even committed a crime, and the online content that you see, which in turn shapes your worldview and the purchases you make. Heck, even if you keep an unbelievably low profile and the only app you ever use is to rate TV shows, that's enough for political advertisers to be able to hammer you with ads based on the political views they've statistically correlated with other people who watch the same shows as you. There is an extremely illuminating map of the 2016 U.S. election where electoral districts are colored by whether the people in them prefer the show Girls or Duck Dynasty. So there is nothing neutral about the information you put out into the world. And while we're speaking about your online behavior being kosher, there have been instances where, for instance, people's bar mitzvah photos on Facebook have put them at great risk of anti-Semitic attacks. And as we will discuss more next week, the data that is collected on people reflects the systemic biases already present in society. And app developers or data collectors can introduce their own biases into data collection as well, which leads to biased or discriminatory AI prediction systems. All of the above have been what philosophers call consequentialist concerns. That is, concerns about the consequences of data in the wrong hands. But on the flip side, there are deontological concerns— which is philosopher-speak, for concerns that should apply simply as a matter of principle or based on a universally acknowledged rule of ethics. For instance, as a matter of principle, you should care about privacy because you want to have a life that you hope to live autonomously without Google or the government being able to infringe in ways you have not consented to. Even if your information is never used for ill, it's ethically important for you to know that your private information is indeed privately your own. 
This, of course, doesn't mean you need to be completely off the grid in an aluminum foil-lined house, terrified of making a phone call. The reason we need to understand how our data is being used is because while there's a huge potential for things to go wrong, there is also immense opportunity for data to make the world better. The right data, collected and stored in an ethical, consensual, privacy-preserving way, can help us make massive advances in pandemic tracking, predictive diagnoses, and tons of climate applications as we've seen. Or even what I'm convinced is the most virtuous and unimpeachable use of AI, Spotify's Discover Weekly playlist. But we should be able to have a society where our data is used to make lives better while mitigating the non-consensual and potentially manipulative uses of that same information. In order to do that, yes, we must be aware of how our data is being used, but then we must understand the rules that govern its usage in this country. That's where we turn now. Part 2. Rules and Regulations The law is pretty dang complicated. We could, and law students do, easily spend this entire course discussing only privacy law in Canada. Let's start here. What is the law? Well, the law is comprised of many different pieces. First, there is legislation, which the government passes in the House of Commons. These are acts of parliament, which can take a ton of time to develop, and once developed, take a ton of time to update. Then there's the constitution, which constrains what the government is and is not allowed to do, including what it is and is not allowed to put into legislation, as well as the rights of all individuals in the country. In Canada, we have what's called a living tree doctrine, The idea that our interpretation of the Constitution must be ever-evolving and growing like a living tree as our society changes. The principal constitutional document in Canada is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which came into effect in 1982. Then there is case law from courts. When justices write their decisions on court cases, these verdicts can clarify how our understanding of the law should change over time. We can view this as an ever-evolving conversation between judges being passed down through the ages, dating back in some cases to the medieval British system that inspired the Canadian one. This body of text is collectively called the common law. The common law can also fill in gaps in places where there is no government legislation. For instance, in the United States, it was decided in the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade that it is unconstitutional to deny the right to an abortion. But there is no piece of government-passed legislation that codifies this. So, to sum up, Politicians can pass legislation through a political process in government. The Constitution exists to constrain what the government can and cannot do. And courts and judges interpret legislation and set precedent through their decisions in court 
which form the common law. All of this, collectively, is the law. So when we talk about AI, data, and privacy, there are two main pieces of legislation we need to pay attention to and one fundamental constitutional right. I'm going to start with one of these pieces of legislation, which dictates what corporations and businesses can do with user data. It's called the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, or PIPIDA. These people must have so much fun with these acronyms. The main thrust of PIPIDA is that organizations must obtain consent from their consumers and users and must state in advance how they will manage their users' data. But this is much, much easier said than done. Think about how difficult informed consent is when you're giving your information to Facebook or Amazon or Google. First of all, have you seen those terms of service? Completely unreadable. So off the bat, you have no idea what you're signing up for and consenting to. Then, as part of these platforms, you often end up consenting to things you might not want to have participated in at all. For instance, you'll likely remember the Cambridge Analytica scandal of 2018, where an app that quizzed people on their political beliefs turned out to be gathering data not only about the individuals who had signed up, but on all of their friends, too. And the company was then selling that data to political advertisers who could run ads in the United States and internationally. Surely, despite having clicked some sort of consent button for some sort of data, this was not part of informed consent. For many of these services as well, they are allowed to use opt-out consent. So the default state for many of these products is that you've given your consent, but you can choose not to share your data by modifying the settings. The problem, of course, is that most users will have no idea that this is even an option and will just continue to allow data collection as normal. Another tricky thing about PIPIDA is that it allows companies to disclose your information to the government without your knowledge if it is required in the interest of national security or law enforcement. Once again, the lines are extremely slippery here because there's no black-and-white case of what constitutes security or law enforcement. So those are some of the concerns with PIPIDA. What about the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? Section 8 of the Charter says that everyone has the right to be secure against unreasonable search or seizure. Let's dig a bit into this sentence. It's no grab me that bowl, but this uh, charter clause is definitely jam-packed. First off, the charter secures people's rights against the government. The government is not allowed to conduct unreasonable search or seizure against an individual. The charter does not apply to private entities like Google, who are constrained by their own laws like PIPIDA. Now, how about this word unreasonable? This means that under certain circumstances, it is permissible for the government to invade your privacy. And even the word everyone 
in everyone has the right to be secure against unreasonable search and seizure, everyone is super tricky. It means that this law only applies to individuals as individuals. It does not apply to groups, which means that there is no constitutional protection against, for instance, community surveillance. So this means that the government is not constrained from monitoring group activities or protests or even picking out individuals as part of a larger group as long as they are not directly doing unreasonable search and seizure to any one individual. An example of a recent Section 8 charter case is R.V. Rogers Communication, where the police ordered cell tower information from TELUS and Rogers for 40,000 customers, and the courts deemed this an unreasonable search. This might feel like the right move. People's telecommunications information should be their own. But even this is an unusual predicament where we are trusting private companies like TELUS and Rogers to be the gatekeepers of our information, like our locations, addresses, and interests. Is that even the optimal situation? There is, in fact, a new form of governance that is just gaining traction to address this very issue. It's called a data trust. A trust is a legal instrument where people can place resources, like money, into the hands of people who will take care of that resource. That person is called the trustee. This could potentially be done with data. We could, someday in the future, have a situation where people pool together their data, managed by a trustee or a group of trustees, who can then negotiate with governments or companies to grant access to that information in a way that all of the people who have entered into the trust consent to. This idea of a data trust is still up and coming, so stay tuned to the hyper-niche legal scholarship of fiduciary trusts if you want to learn more. As you can see, there are a ton of extremely thorny issues here. While these might not feel like they are laws about AI, this is exactly what AI is. Machine learning is about acquiring data from somewhere, the internet, an app, Google searches, privately held location information, cell phone towers, a trust, and turning that data into a predictive model. One set of regulations that has received a great deal of media attention, rightly so, is the European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. You've likely heard of it because the day it was enacted into the European Parliament in May of 2018, you probably received notifications from tons of apps you didn't even know you had accounts with, letting you know that they were GDPR compliant and ensuring you they were keeping your data safe. This is surely reminiscent of the many emails you and everyone received in mid-March, letting you know that the company you bought theater tickets from nine years ago, is still here to support you in unprecedented times. The purpose of the GDPR is to establish consistent guidelines for all European countries, and it replaces laws that were decades old and simply do not apply anymore in our current data landscape. The GDPR has seven key principles that all companies and organizations that collect data must comply with. Among them is data minimization, 
organizations cannot collect more data from their users than they actually need. Another principle is security, that is, proper safeguards against cyber attacks and hacking. And finally, accountability. Organizations must be able to prove that they are GDPR compliant. GDPR also gives individuals the right to ask organizations to disclose exactly how their data is being used for free. Tinder once sent a user an 800-page document with all the information they'd gathered about them, including the location of every match they'd ever had. One of the biggest criticisms of GDPR is that because its requirements are so exacting, it will be extremely expensive for many organizations to implement. One estimate is that GDPR will cost EU companies 200 billion euros to implement. Regardless, the GDPR has been viewed by many as a model for effective and transparent data regulation, and the state of California recently passed its own law that very closely mirrors it. To sum up, there are rules that are ever-evolving in place about how the government and corporations can treat data, and we as a country are still trying to figure out where exactly the boundaries lie in this nebulous area called privacy. Here is one example to bring this into clear relief. Every five years, the government of Canada conducts a census of its population. This information is legally protected and the individual data that is collected about each citizen in this country cannot be disclosed directly. But this is actually way, way trickier than it sounds. The census contains a gargantuan amount of information, sensitive, identifiable, private information about the location, family structure, income, race, gender, and much more of the citizens. How do you publish a report on this information without actually directly identifying any of the individuals whose information has been collected? If someone wanted to, could they not hypothetically generate every possible version of every possible answer to every census question for every person in the country, then simply choose the configuration that most corresponds to the average reports put out by the government? In doing so, they might not be able to identify every single person, but surely they would have a plausible chance at guessing a huge proportion of this private information, right? It turns out that safeguarding against this kind of attack is a startlingly difficult task. So that's the goal. Say something interesting and important about a group of people while revealing absolutely nothing about the individuals within it. This is not just a legal problem. It's a mathematical one. Part 3. Privacy can be solved mathematically. You've got a bunch of information and you need to publish results without disclosing any individual's data. This is a mathematical problem called differential privacy. How do you do it? One suggestion might simply be anonymization. 
But this is far, far less simple than it sounds. A 2019 study showed that 99.98% of Americans could be identified using just 15 attributes. That is, even if I had a data set which just showed the height, age, state, and education level obtained, and other totally innocuous and generic categories of all the citizens in the U.S., it would be possible to identify almost every single person on that list by name, even if all the names were blacked out. A study of the 1990 U.S. Census showed that 87% of the U.S. population could be identified with only their zip code, gender, and date of birth. Half the country can be identified with only gender, date of birth, and the city that they live in. In other domains, anonymization simply is not sufficient. Slightly more innocuous, but still very illuminating, is that Netflix once published the movie preferences of 500,000 anonymous customers to challenge people to come up with an improved recommendation algorithm. But two researchers were able to correlate individuals' preferences with IMDb pages in order to identify a large sample of these customers by name. The reason is because once you account for the 100 or so movies that everyone watches, your high school musicals and Star Wars and Princess Brides and Harry Potters, people's tastes are pretty individual. So it's not hard to identify them by name with even a little bit of other correlated data, such as their IMDb rankings or Facebook likes. This doesn't feel that bad, but think about how it can be applied in other settings. Your Amazon purchase history could de-anonymize a public database of credit card purchases. Or Google, with its search information database, could easily zero in on its searches of medical terms to de-anonymize a public health database. To be sure, Google doesn't actually need to do this because through its subsidiary, Google Health, and its partnerships between DeepMind and the National Health Service in the UK, it already has access to an immense amount of medical data. But as a matter of principle, this simply illustrates how anonymity is far from protection. The general phenomenon here is called a linkage attack. Linking together anonymous data to gain de-anonymized information. Here's one final example of a linkage attack, just to drive the point home. Given enough detailed labels on both images of faces and MRIs, it is possible to match a set of faces to their MRI scans. Basically, you can reconstruct a person's face from a scan of their brain then use facial recognition technology to find that person's face and therefore identity online to look up other information about them. This is certainly not a common practice, but the mere possibility of it forces us to take these issues extremely seriously. And I should say, many of these examples, they do sound kind of scary or, or, or dangerous or worrisome, but just in the, as with the example of the malicious uses of AI we discussed a couple of weeks ago, 
talking about these examples and recognizing their possibility is is a very good thing because it means that security experts and engineers and policymakers are aware of these issues and they're on our radar to be tackled. So anonymization simply does not work because, among other things, of linkage attacks. Well, if anonymization is insufficient, what is? Well, one idea is that instead of using absolute numbers for attributes like age or income, we could instead use ranges. Imagine that if, instead of disclosing my actual age on a census, I reported that my age was between 20 and 30. But even then, we're facing trade-offs. The bigger this range gets, the less interesting the data set becomes. If I give a narrow range, say, between 23 and 27 for my age, then you know a bit more about me, but I've forfeited some privacy by narrowing the range on that information. If I give you a larger range, there's less accuracy, but more privacy. Differential privacy is the branch of mathematics and computer science which tries to solve this problem. You'll often see this question posed as epsilon differential privacy, with the Greek letter epsilon, referring to a way to quantify the amount of privacy that can be guaranteed by the way information is published. Here is one potential way to solve this problem, and if I'm being honest, it kind of blows my mind. Let's imagine that the person taking the census comes to my door and tells me to pick a number between negative three and positive three out of a hat at random. And then instead of writing my age on the census, I should write my age plus or minus that number. For instance, if I reach into the hat and I pick out a two, I say that I'm 27. If I pick out a negative three, I say that I'm 22. If everyone in the country does this, then the random fluctuations cancel each other out. And what we obtain is a fair distribution of everyone's age in the country. But for any given individual, you can't know if the age they've put down is their actual age or whether it's been tampered with by this random process. This makes it much harder to directly identify individuals since you now don't have any individual person's real data while maintaining the population-level information. This technique is actually quite common in social science experiments when you need to ask participants for sensitive information. Say you're conducting a survey asking if people have ever done an illicit drug. You ask them to flip a coin in private. If it lands heads... They say yes, no matter what the true answer is. If tails, they answer truthfully. Once you collect all of your data, you'll know that half of the yes answers can be ignored because they were just the results of a heads coin flip. And so you can look at the distribution of truthful responses by ignoring half of those yeses. But for any given individual, you can't know what their coin flip said so you won't know any given person's truthfulness on this survey. Ultimately, the goal of differential privacy is to make it so that any given data set is roughly unchanged by adding or removing 
any one person's information. The brilliance of this idea is that it demonstrates that adding noise, whether that be through a random coin flip or through a jitter to your reported age in the census, can actually make data more useful and safe. Here's another way to think about this problem of differential privacy. Say I run a survey of all the students in this class and find that a majority are the eldest child in their family. I then publish this study in a journal. If someone outside the class reads the study and then meets you, they now have a piece of private information about you, namely that you're more likely to be the eldest child in your family. What would it mean for the disclosure of the results of this study to be privacy-preserving? The idea is that your privacy should be violated no more than it would have been if you hadn't participated in the study at all. For each individual entry in the data, you should be able to remove it, and the results would still be roughly the same. Adding noise to data can make it more private. Incredible. Differential privacy can also apply to other types of big data sets. For instance, if hospitals are giving medical data to companies like DeepMind, they can apply the principles of epsilon differential privacy to ensure that no individual's records can be traced back while still maintaining the aggregate properties that allow DeepMind to build robust machine learning models. This is just one type of privacy preservation that can apply to large datasets like the census or healthcare records or results from studies, which can then become machine learning models. But what about ways of accessing data and maybe running a machine learning model on it without even seeing that data at all? This is a technique called federated learning. The idea here is this. What if instead of needing to download a bunch of health data and run a machine learning model on it, I can send my model to the hospital, train a neural network, and develop a model without ever actually seeing the data myself? If, for instance, you use Google Gboard to type on your phone, this actually happens on a nightly basis. A neural network descends from the cloud, trains itself on your messages to become better at predicting your text, then returns to the cloud without storing any of your individual information. This is federated learning at its finest. Contrast this, by the way, with the example we discussed earlier in this lecture from Amazon Echo, where your data goes onto the server, where it's then used to train a machine learning model and remembered forever. These very subtle differences in approach can have huge implications for privacy. What about an even simpler type of information exchange? How can I send messages over the internet while guaranteeing that they can't be used to train an AI algorithm because I simply want them to be between me, the sender, and you, the receiver? I don't want a situation where I'm speaking with a friend about purchasing salsa dance lessons, then find that 15 minutes later I've seen three different ads for dance lessons near me. More generally, is there a way for me to give you information and guarantee that it's used only for the purpose I want, 
say, a private text message without any external access? This question, generally speaking, falls under the umbrella of encryption. Encryption is a way to use mathematics to guarantee that information can only be accessed by the parties who are intended to access it. Here is a very simple example, but a very prominent one in cryptography, called public key cryptography. It relies on an important mathematical fact. It is very, very simple to multiply prime numbers together, but very, very hard to be given a large number and, and know which prime numbers we had to multiply in order to get it. Think about it this way. Would you rather answer the question, what is 59 times 13? Or the question, give me the two unique prime numbers that multiply to 767. I hope you agree that the former is much simpler. If I give you a gigantic number of hundreds or even thousands of digits, the question of finding its prime factors becomes increasingly difficult as the number of digits goes up. There is no known efficient algorithm that can factor integers, which simply means that as the length of the number to be factored grows, the amount of time to factor it grows faster than any graph of a polynomial equation. That is, an equation of the form x to the n. If you remember graphing polynomial functions like x squared or x cubed or x to the 10, this problem of factoring integers shoots up faster than every possible graph of that type. So what does this have to do with text messaging? Well, imagine if every person with a cell phone multiplied two massive prime numbers together to generate a huge output. Every person now makes that output number public. The two initial prime numbers are called a private key, and the huge output is called a public key. So you put your public key, which is just a very large number, out into the world without disclosing the prime numbers that multiplied to make it. Now, say I want to send you a message. I use your public key as the input into an algorithm that jumbles up my message to make it illegible. This is called encryption. The only way to unjumble this message is by using the private key, that is, by knowing the numbers that were initially multiplied together. But only you know these factors, since you're the only one who multiplied them together in the first place. This is, this is the miracle, since the problem of factoring integers is so hard, even if your key is public, it doesn't matter because no one else can factor it without truly ginormous computational resources. So, in order to decrypt this message, you input your private key into the message, the message unjumbles, and you can read it just fine. You can then send me back a message by encrypting it using my public key. This is just one very basic and simplified form of end-to-end -end encryption called public key cryptography, but this is the workhouse, keeping your credit card information safe and your messages encrypted. And it all simply rests on the fact that factoring integers is hard. A 
Quick word of warning, with the advent of quantum computers, which can solve some problems much more efficiently than classical computers, we will need new cryptographic methods. But don't worry, computer scientists are on the case. Let me give one final example to illustrate how these mathematical privacy ideas can work in practice. Say you are a machine learning researcher who wants to build a model that classifies MRI data. Your goal is to be able to input images of MRI scans and quickly identify traumatic brain injuries or glioma tumors. Where is this data going to come from? A central repository? If so, we can use differential techniques to make sure that the compiled data set is roughly the same, even if we end up removing one person's brain scan from the pool. Or maybe we don't even need to compile this data into one central place. Maybe we can let each hospital keep their image bank locally and have a central machine learning model that uses federated techniques to be locally trained on each data set, then have those models be aggregated together without the machine learning team ever actually directly accessing the data. And maybe we want to be sure that these brain scans are only seen by precisely the groups of healthcare specialists and engineers who ought to be seeing them, in which case we can rely on encryption to keep that exchange of information secure. Far from being a niche part of AI, these privacy-preserving techniques are in fact the backbone of building algorithms that are safe and robust. We are very lucky in this class to have a special interview with Emma Bloomkey and Andrew Trask from an organization called OpenMind, which is working on developing tools that allow people to implement these really sophisticated mathematical, mathematical techniques in their code directly. So they don't have to worry about these questions from a philosophical or cryptographic point of view. They can just fire up their Python code and directly put these privacy-preserving tools in. So um, I'm excited for you all to be able to listen to my interview with uh, these representatives from OpenMind. And I encourage you to, to, to look it up as an organization because they're doing some really phenomenal work. Part 4. AI in medicine. I'd like to finish by discussing a bit more about the regulatory concerns AI poses in medicine. As we've already seen, AI can be used effectively for diagnostics, in wearables, and other medical devices, but really, we should be thinking of AI as playing a role in every single part of medicine. Machine learning algorithms can play a role in embryo selection for in vitro fertilization, genetic scans, mental health chatbots, the assigning of hospital beds, and so much more. Or even consider the following scenario. A physician is trying to decide on a cancer drug for a patient. They pull up the patient's electronic health record and fire up the cancer choice module. This module pulls information from the patient's medical records, genetic sequence, and family history, but also has access to the patient's wearable fitness tracker, diet app, shopping history, and sleeping information. How should we be moving forward in a world where, increasingly, all data is health data?
we should start by understanding how patients actually feel about their own medical data and the possibility of their human doctor being assisted, augmented, or replaced by a predictive model. There is not yet much research on patient sentiment about AI, but one recent study at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto interviewed patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers about these very questions. The overarching sentiment from all of these groups was uncertainty. It was not clear where the threshold between consensual and non-consensual data use lies. Most patients said that de-identification, that is the removal of a patient's name or social insurance number from their data, would be a sufficient privacy-protecting measure, but as we've seen, that might not be enough. Only a minority of patients agreed that the output from an algorithm or computer should be able to determine their course of care and that algorithms should not be deciding whether a person is admitted to or given a bed in a hospital. The participants in this study also agreed that mistakes will be inevitable with computer models and that it's the hospital's responsibility to financially compensate if this happens. Finally, nearly everyone in this particular study agreed that the selling of healthcare data to private companies should be prohibited. Overwhelmingly, patients agreed that they wanted transparency about how their data would be used, communicated by a trusted authority. Though this is just one study, it illustrates that the solutions to these questions are far from clear. Another important concern is liability. In general, a physician can avoid malpractice liability by providing the standard of care, that is, the same general type of medical care that a competent specialist within their area might give. But what happens when algorithms get into the mix? Think about the following scenario. A doctor needs to prescribe medicine to a patient, so they consult an algorithm to help them choose the dose. We could have a situation where the doctor and the algorithm agree or disagree. The doctor could choose to either accept or ignore the computer's recommendation. And then the treatment could either work for the patient or not. This gives rise to eight different scenarios, each with its own liability concerns. The simplest scenario is where the AI recommends the standard of care, the doctor agrees, and the medicine works. No issues there at all. But if the AI does not recommend the standard of care, the doctor chooses to follow the algorithm's non-standard advice and, for instance, a complication results, then that physician is at present liable. You should think through all of the other situations here. The computer recommending the standard of care, the physician rejecting that, and the treatment working. The computer recommending a non-standard dose, but the doctor gives the standard dose. Each of these situations poses their own ethical challenges that we are actively working through. Legal experts are already preparing for the possibility that someday the AI-recommended dose will simply become the standard of care. This could happen with hyper-personalized medicine based on predictive models. At the moment, the most important thing is to make sure that any AI-enabled device in a clinical setting is tested and rigorously vetted. 
Because also, this is not just about individual physicians and patients. Hospitals who purchase an AI recommendation system might face liability too, and so could the manufacturers of the device. Needless to say, it's complicated. The history of medicine is riddled with cases of violated consent, especially against poorer, racialized, and more vulnerable patients and communities. You have perhaps heard the story of Henrietta Lacks, whose cervical cancer cells were taken non-consensually and are still used to this day in medical research with minimal compensation to the Lacks family. The patients in the study I've described here and legal regulators in healthcare appreciate that this type of egregious breach of consent and privacy should not and must not happen again with AI in the clinic. Fortunately, there doesn't necessarily have to be a trade-off between privacy, consent, accuracy, and beneficence. Recent advances in privacy-preserving AI, spearheaded by organizations like OpenMind and new regulatory frameworks like the GDPR, have made it clear that there is a middle ground here. While we don't want to be open books that are continuously monitored, listened to, tracked, and surveilled by tech companies and governments, we do want to be sure that the huge quantity of data generated by our digital activities can be put to use, making us happier, healthier, and safer. Fortunately for us, mathematicians, cryptographers, policymakers, and bioethicists are on the case. I'm grateful for them and grateful to you because simply by taking this course, you are playing an active role in an important and evolving conversation about technology and the future we want to build. 